0: This is Bloomberg Law
1: with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a case over South Carolina's congressional map that could help determine which party controls the House after next year's election. And if the Supreme Court arguments were any indication, the Republicans won. A three-judge panel had concluded that for South Carolina's first district, GOP lawmakers established a target of 17% black voters, shifting 30,000 African Americans out of the district to hit the goal and engaging in unconstitutional racial gerrymandering in drawing what is now a Republican-held district. But today, the conservative majority of the Supreme Court voiced skepticism about that. The Republicans say they were motivated by politics, not race, and the Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that voting maps can't be challenged in federal court as excessively partisan. But a line of cases says the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause bars people who draw maps from making race the predominant factor. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. An important redistricting case came before the court today. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, this is a case involving South Carolina. And a lower court, a three judge panel, said that when South Carolina drew its congressional map, it used race more than it should have, it engaged in a racial gerrymandering. And the evidence that the lower court pointed to was that in drawing the first district in South Carolina, which is now a Republican held district, first map drawers added a number of African American voters, about thirty thousand people, into the district, and then the lower court found, because that number of black voters in the district might have caused it to go Democratic, they moved a different 30,000 voters out of the district. And the lower court said that is unconstitutional racial gerrymandering. You use race too much in that process. And therefore, we are striking down this congressional district.
1: And so what did you hear from the justices? The justices, at least the conservative justices, didn't seem to be buying that. It
2: was an argument that seemed like it might divide the court along ideological lines. And the backdrop of this is the court a few years ago said that partisan gerrymandering can't be challenged. So it would have been perfectly fine for Republicans to say, we're drawing the first congressional district this way because we wanted to keep keep it Republican. And the issue is that race and politics overlap so much that sometimes it's hard to sort of disentangle them and figure out what's really going on. And the conservative justices suggested they didn't see clear enough evidence that what was going on here was race rather than politics.
1: Even though they shifted thirty thousand blacks out of the district.
2: Yes, and of course when they did that they also shifted some some white voters as well. That was one of the points that Justice Kavanaugh made over the course of the argument. One of the points that both Justice Gorsuch and Chief Justice Roberts pointed to was that the challengers to this map didn't come up with an alternative that would have let the state meet its political goals without using race quite so much. So there was some skepticism there as to whether it was even possible to draw the kind of map that Republicans wanted without having race seem like it played a significant role.
1: So it doesn't seem as if the justices are going to have a surprise ruling like they did in the Alabama case where they ruled against the map by Republicans. So it it seems like that was just a one-shot deal. The issues are different.
2: (laughs) So two things, June. First of all, I can't remember if we had a conversation after the Alabama argument, but I, I would have said at the time, It seemed like they were going to back Republicans in in that case as well. That one turned out to be a surprise. Who knows? Maybe this one will be a surprise, too. The second thing to say is these are very different legal issues. That was a matter under the Voting Rights Act of whether the state should be required to, to draw a second majority black or nearly majority black district there because there were so many black voters who were so concentrated in a few parts of the state. Here, it's not a matter of drawing an additional majority black district. This is a separate line of Supreme Court cases where they say you just can't use race too much in redistricting. It can't be the predominant factor. And so the fact that they ruled one way in the Alabama case doesn't really, at least as a doctrinal matter, dictate what they would do in this case.
1: Let's turn now, Greg, to a case the Supreme Court heard on Tuesday where the court considered reinstating a $900,000 jury verdict won by a fired UBS research strategist in a case that could make it easier for whistleblowers to win suits claiming retaliation under a federal investor protection law. Tell us more about that case.
2: This is a case about a man named Trevor Murray, who worked as a research strategist for UBS in the commercial mortgage backed securities market. And he says he was fired because he refused to skew his reports to back the company's mortgage backed securities trading business. And the question at the Supreme Court is basically what does he have to show in order to win his lawsuit? And what do other whistleblowers have to show? To win lawsuits under a law known as the Sarbanes Oxley Act.
1: What were the arguments? Let's start with the arguments for UBS. And the lawyer for UBS has a last name we're all familiar with.
2: Yes, it's Eugene Scalia. He is the son of the late Justice Antonin Scalia. This was his first Supreme Court argument. uh, For obvious reasons, he didn't argue while his father was on the court. And he represented UBS. And he argued that what Murray has to show is intentional discrimination or maybe even intentional retaliation. And he says it's because the law says that what is prohibited is discrimination. And uh, because of that, uh, that is part of what a plaintiff has to show, has to convince a jury of.
1: And it seemed like several of the justices were confused by his argument and said so, <laughs> liberals and conservatives.
2: Yeah, yeah. He got a bit of a, of a rough reception, even from some of the more conservative justices. So Justice Brett Kavanaugh, for example, looked at the case, and, and he thought that all that was really required was that UBS have a chance to argue to the jury that it didn't fire murray in retaliation for his alleged whistleblowing but that it fired him for other reasons and ubs says it was because of overall staffing re- reductions and so justice kavanaugh asked mr scalia didn't that defense get to the jury and there were some other uh, conservatives as well uh, justice neil gorsuch said you know that he didn't see the word retaliation in the statute and therefore suggests the plaintiff shouldn't be required to explicitly show intentional retaliation was the cause of of his dismissal.
1: So it's intentional retaliation? Because to me, retaliation implies intent.
2: It does. Let let, let me back up just a little, and maybe this will help explain things. One thing both sides agree on is that the law kind of separately sets up a burden-shifting system. And what that means is a plaintiff first has to show that his or her whistleblowing was a contributing factor in being fired or or something like that. And if they can do that, then it's up to the employer to show that by clear and convincing evidence that they would have taken the same action, even if it weren't for the whistleblowing. And so that's sort of a system that is set up that some justices said, that's actually a way of kind of figuring out whether this was intentional or not, that if an employer can't show that there was some other reason that they would have fired the employee for, then that suggests that it was intentional. It wasn't done for the reason of retaliation and that it was, was intentional.
1: So what was the argument on behalf of the whistleblower?
2: So the argument on behalf of the whistleblower was basically that that burden shifting is all that is required under the law. And that if an employer is not able to show that it would have taken the action, even without the whistleblowing, then the employer is liable that that essentially is a showing that they did intentionally retaliate. And what they were saying is we don't have to show kind of as a whole separate line of of argument, somehow get inside the minds of an employer and show this is what they were thinking when they made this decision. It's enough that if they can't show that there was some other reason, if that happens, that that's enough and we should win our case.
1: Did the Biden administration take a position?
2: Uh, the Biden administration did weigh in in this case. They were on the side of the whistleblower.
1: This was an appeal from the Second Circuit. Is the Second Circuit the only circuit that's ruled this way?
2: I believe it's the only circuit that has ruled this way. There are other circuits that have ruled the other way. In other words, they have said that you don't have to show intentional retaliation to win your suit. That's actually the reason most likely the Supreme Court agreed to take up this case, to clear up that lower court disagreement.
1: Justice Gorsuch didn't want to get into the particulars of the statute, which he saw us complicating the justice's task, but some of the other justices seem to disagree with that.
2: So Trevor Murray is asking the Supreme Court to reinstate a jury that, that he won. Justice Gorsuch was suggesting a ruling favoring uh, Mr. Murray, but short of that, he was suggesting we just say the Second Circuit was wrong to say that there's a requirement of intentional retaliation because the word retaliation isn't in the statute. We just say the Second Circuit was wrong to insist on that, and then we kick it back to the Second Circuit and let it figure out what to do next. And some of the other justices and some of the advocates suggest that that would leave open an awful lot of questions about what exactly is required under this law, and that would eventually lead to another Supreme Court case.
1: So this is important because this is an element in whistleblower suits under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act?
2: It is, and employees have filed upwards of 750 claims with the, the Labor Department uh, over the past six years or so. So a significant number of cases, and all of them sort of by definition are affecting publicly traded companies.
1: And was this a two-hour argument? So an hour longer than necessary it, or scheduled? It lasted about an hour and a half, which is about
2: par for the course of these days. They schedule an, an hour for an argument. But what ends up happening is that there's, even at the end of a lawyer's allotted time, there's an additional period where they go justice by justice to ask additional questions.
1: A COVID leftover. Remember the days when they stuck to that hour and those lights went on and it meant business. So there was disagreement, I take it, over where the court should land exactly. But did it appear like there were a majority of justices that were in favor of, you know, making it easier for whistleblowers?
2: It did seem like there was a majority of justices, at least for the narrow ruling that Justice Gorsuch was suggesting. Uh, There wasn't a whole lot of support for the Second Circuit ruling and UBS's arguments in support of it. It's not 100 percent clear, but that seemed like the leaning of the court was to give the employee at least a partial victory.
1: And I have to ask, did Eugene Scalia do a textual argument in honor of his father? (laughs)
2: <laughs> everybody does a textual <laughs> argument nowadays in large part because of his father and the influence that he had
1: justice scalia certainly left his mark on the court Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: Israel is at war. We didn't want this war. It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. But though Israel didn't start this war, Israel will finish it. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu promised punishing retaliation for the shocking attack by Hamas on Saturday, where militants stormed into border communities and massacred hundreds of Israelis in their homes, on the streets and at an outdoor music festival, taking more than 100 people hostage, including women, children and the elderly. So far, Israel has unleashed intense airstrikes in Gaza, flattening entire city blocks and has cut off essentials like food, fuel and electricity, while Hamas militants in Gaza continue to fire rockets at Israel. My guest is international law expert Mary Ellen O'Connor, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. The Hamas attack, the deliberate targeting of civilians, hundreds massacred, taking hostages, are those actions war crimes that can be prosecuted?
3: June, let's start with a preliminary question of whether they even have the right to resort to this kind of major armed violence. It is a hotly contested question. I take a more progressive view and understand new scholarship and new research, including my own, suggests that people living under long term occupation must use nonviolent resistance so that from the get-go, there was no right to resort to this military force. But even if Hamas or other Palestinians have the right to take up arms to try to remove Israelis from their territory, there's another principle at stake here, and it really applies to both sides in this terrible conflict, and that's called the principle of necessity, And it applies to any decision to resort to major armed violence of the kind we're seeing here. If a party has no reasonable chance of succeeding in using military force, then every death they cause, even of their opponents' soldiers, troops, will be unlawful. You can't kill people in a vain effort. And let's face it, after all these decades... What Hamas was trying to do had nothing to do with accomplishing a legitimate military objective of removing Israelis from Gaza. They knew they had no chance of accomplishing that. So what were they doing? I'm with those who believe Hamas's efforts were nothing more than terrorism. The infliction of terrible violence for the purpose of trying to get political concessions, it may not have even been that because... Hamas has tried that particular tactic, terrorist tactics, clearly criminal actions for so long with no result. So was it just a mass suicide attempt by truly desperate people? At any rate, even if there was some legal basis for Hamas taking action, it is never, ever legitimate. It is an absolute prohibition to target civilians, those not taking direct part in hostilities, those who are not members of the Israeli armed forces and hostages, even worse. To take people and to bargain for them and to use them as bargaining chips, terrifying them and children, this is beyond the pale. And then, of course, I assume your next question will be, what about Israel's response?
1: Yes. So, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared war and said he had ordered the Israel Defense Forces to prepare for a mass offensive against Hamas, and they've started with
3: these airstrikes. So just as Hamas, in my view, had no legal right to resort to this kind of armed, significant armed violence against Israelis, the Israeli government also has clear limits on its right to respond even to this kind of major terrorist violence. Of course, every state has the right to take all defensive measures on their own territory or in defense of their own communities, their own civilian populations, living peacefully. They may take defensive measures. There's a huge difference between defending, protecting, preventing incoming violence, and offensively responding especially in a situation like that of Gaza. This is not an area where you can easily defeat, as on an old-fashioned battlefield, a formation of enemy military combatants. We just don't have that situation. We have a heavily populated, densely populated a group of people who had nothing to do with what Hamas has carried out, or very tangential. Just as Israeli civilians cannot be the target of violence nor can the Palestinians who are not participating in the Hamas armed action. It is very questionable whether this kind of major military offensive on the territory of another people is first lawful, but second, that same rule, that same principle of necessity, which would prevent Palestinians from trying to use military force to take back Palestinian territory. Israel has tried this kind of tactic again and again, and it has not worked to defend Israel, to create security. We just see an escalation to this current tragic moment. Israel, under the principle of necessity, needs to try other means. It needs to work cooperatively in law enforcement. It needs to finally address the roots of ongoing violence.
1: Among other things, Israel might say, well, the Palestinians are launching rockets into Israel. So why don't we have the right to launch rockets at Gaza?
3: Right. We never say in the law that because somebody has committed a criminal action, we have a right of a criminal response. That's just not how the law works. It can't work that way. When criminals carry out criminal actions, we respond with law enforcement. And the great thing about our ancient principles prohibiting resort to military force, demanding respect for the principle of necessity and proportionality and distinction, all these ancient principles have been honed over time to be effective. And those who comply with the law in how they respond to criminal and other kinds of violent action, military action, they are the ones who succeed. If you follow the strict rule, you will succeed. So we know this exactly in the example Of Palestinians and Israelis. Hamas has been shooting rockets into southern Israel for decades. Israel has not found a way effectively to stop them because Israel is not following the path of the law and it has constantly tried with more and more force. Yes, the devastation could lead to a lull in violence for a while, but the seeds of the next tragedy, I'm so fearful, are being planted. When there is an alternative, and that is to strictly follow the rule of law. Enhance defenses for Israeli communities. Make sure that all Hamas fighters who may still be in, in those communities are removed. Now, this is, this is something Israel can do right now. It can use careful law enforcement methods, the kinds of methods that the U.S. has perfected in rescuing hostages who are being held by armed militant groups. The U.S. has done so successfully, for example, in Somalia, with no loss of U.S. military lives or the lives of hostages. That is what Israel should be planning right now. It would be such a major victory for Israel to bring its 100-plus people safely out of the hands of these militants.
1: Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Professor Mary Ellen O'Connor of Notre Dame Law School. And we'll talk about the international law involving the rescue of hostages. I've been talking to Notre Dame Law School professor Mary Ellen O'Connor about international law regarding the deadly conflict between Israel and Hamas. Hamas is holding hostages including women, children and elderly people and no one knows where they're being held. Does Israel have the right under international law to go into Gaza to rescue the hostages?
3: Yes, absolutely Israel can take means to military means, law enforcement means are really the better method to rescue um, any of its nationals that are being held. That absolutely is right. There's, there's an old, old principle of rescue of nationals being permissible. This is often carried out with uh, using your, your military forces because they have this kind of clandestine um, foreign territory experience. We used commando force when we uh, carried out this brilliant rescue operation in Somalia some years ago. That is definitely, there's no doubt in my mind about that. There's some debate about what the legal theory is. Some people say it's Self defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter, I think there's no basis for that. Rescue of nationals is a countermeasure, it is the right to violate a state's sovereign territory for the express and limited purpose of bringing your people out alive. And you can use limited armed force to protect the mission. And succeed in bringing people out, just as police would do in a hostage lockdown situation in the U.S. So that, no doubt. And then the other end of the spectrum, I think, is equally clear. Bombing a population, a civilian population, packed into this tight area of Gaza cannot be permitted under international law. There's no right to resort to that kind of level of force under the laws on resort to force and it's a clear violation of the in bellow rules because you cannot make a distinction between fighters and non-fighters so what about the interim between sending some forces for the clear purpose of rescue and bombing indiscriminately the middle level is more difficult to judge even if israel could make out the claim that they were sending military forces highly trained, focused only on Hamas fighters and rooting them out of the populated area of Gaza. Those are all very big ifs. Even if they could succeed in doing that, I do not believe the principle of necessity will be met given this is the fifth Gaza war. The past four did not succeed. They just brought us to this current crisis. The way to succeed now is rescue hostages, protect your people at home begin the hard, hard work of creating a situation where we never again have this kind of violence. And and the only way to do that is to use nonviolent measures. There's a huge toolbox that will lead to a better outcome, but it really takes statesmanship. It really takes humanity now on both sides.
1: I mean, do you really think that that's possible? You have decades of hostility between the Palestinians and the
3: Israelis. What would change that now? Well, I think one thing that should be changing things now is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've come to the point where we have this dramatic example of a country that has completely dismissed any of this law we're talking about with absolute disregard got to get this law back. We are creating such a lawless world with weak governance. We're heading into this unending spiral of violence with strongmen, authoritarians. The whole world has an interest in putting a stop to that. The situation between the Israelis and Palestinians is so much more complicated, and it needs a much more nuanced and complicated answer. But we can start with, if we're interested in defending The prohibition on the use of force for Ukraine, we've got to be interested in that between Israelis and Palestinians and apply it now. The um, United States has a huge role to play. President Biden made clear that the United States condemns what Hamas did. He, however, also emphasized the need for democracies to stand by the rule of law. And That's exactly what I'm talking about. So if people like President Biden, the leaders of the European Union, countries around the world who are so heartbroken at this loss of life, need to close ranks, stand tall, and insist to both Palestinians and Israelis that war and violence is just never going to bring the flourishing communities that they both want, it really comes down so often to this lack of governance Israel can make a huge impact on the terrible state of governance in the occupied Palestinian territories that has led to Hamas being in a position where they could organize weapons and bring people together. Israel can be part of a true multilateral effort to help Palestinians create the governance institutions that will respond, but it requires generosity and economics in commitment to the rule of law, in so many other ways. It's a difficult time, but Israelis themselves are struggling with good governance and commitment to the rule of law as they look at policies to weaken their own exemplary judicial system. So two levels have to work here. We need to start respecting globally the prohibition on the use of force, restricting force to true situations that Ukraine is in, of needing to use force in self-defense this is a message that has to go out to China, to India, to South Africa. Everyone should be supporting Ukraine. And in Israel-Palestine, everyone needs to be supporting the rule of law and understanding what it requires in this situation. It will not be easy in the next days and weeks. But I would just reiterate, we have a solution in the law, and that's what needs to be
1: observed. So talking about defensive measures, Israel has stopped the entry of food, water, fuel, and medicine into Gaza. Is that a defensive measure that's considered legal under international law?
3: Just as with the high aerial bombing or using military planes to bomb, it is absolutely forbidden to cut off food, fuel, medicine, and water to a civilian population. That is a a black-letter rule in the law of armed conflict, when armed conflict is ongoing as it is here now because of mutual violations of the principle on resort to force and the principle of necessity, then the rules on the conduct of armed conflict take over. The clear principle is never to deny food, fuel, water, and medicine to a civilian population.
1: Do you know if there's any effort by, you know, the Red Cross or the World Health Organization to Get food and medicine in there?
3: I assume that one of the goals of Secretary Blinken, who's in Israel right now, is to discuss exactly that point. There may be a lot of debate on some of the international law you and I have been discussing. I've never heard a contrary view to the requirement to allow these necessities of life to reach a civilian population. So um, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Definitely. They always work quietly, behind the scenes, diplomatically, but this would have been one of their foremost messages.
1: And when this conflict is over, is there any accountability for things that were done in violation of international law? June, we speak so
3: much about accountability. There's been a major effort by international lawyers to construct an international criminal court and all during the tragedy of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There's been discussion of accountability. We focus so much on accountability and how difficult it is and how problematic. We fail to say in the first instance, these tragedies could have been prevented if we'd focused on the prohibition on resort to force. That's where I put my focus. Really, the construction of international courts, the attempts to hold these trials, all we're seeing is that it's had no positive impact on prevention. I don't work on those topics for that very reason. I work on disseminating information on respect for the principle of necessity, proportionality, and the use of nonviolence.
1: Thanks for being on the show. That's Professor Mary Ellen O'Connell of Notre Dame Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.